Why don't we open with a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Father, for ruling from on high, even as we call you our Father who is in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for patiently dealing with us in grace, compassion, and mercy. And Father, I pray that even as we study your word this morning, that uh, we too might trust in you more, walk before you in humility. And Father, even as you have impacted my heart through the study of your word, as we uh, discuss it and is delivered this morning, I pray, Father, that your words would be spoken, that uh, your servant uh, would be silenced, but that your Holy Spirit might have his way even in the communication of your precious and holy word. We thank you, Father, for the life of David, even as we study this morning in 1 Samuel 23. Father, I pray that we would learn from both the bad example of Saul and the good example of David, and that our lives might reflect a faithful trust in you for your provision and your deliverance in all the trials of life, let alone the daily uh, activities in our homes, in church, uh, in work, wherever we find ourselves, even this week, Father, may we walk in such a manner as to display our uh, resolved trust in you. So we pray your blessing upon this morning, even as we open your word, that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me, if you would, to the book of First Samuel. And I want to just have a bit of a run-up to chapter 23 this morning so that we can all be given a little better context of where we're at in this historical narrative as the book of Samuel unfolds. In chapter 16, David was anointed, and it's surmised that he may have been about 15 years old, anointed by Saul, Samuel. I keep doing it, Saul and Samuel. David anointed about the age of 15 uh, by Samuel, and he uh, soon thereafter becomes Saul's musician. So he's brought into the uh, royal uh, household. In chapter 17, of course, we have the famous story of David beheading Goliath of Gath. And then in chapter 18, David becomes a very successful commander in Israel's army. And then the son-in-law of Saul as he marries into the royal family. In chapter 19, Saul was temporarily soothed by his son Jonathan, but then went right into hiring conspirators to murder David pursuing David, even up to Samuel's Ramah, and we have Psalm 18 being written as it comes out of these times of trial. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, Jonathan confirms Saul's relentless determination to destroy David. He and uh, uh, David already knew it, and Jonathan had to learn it. Uh, So there's about five years or so in this time frame of ups and downs as David serves in the presence of Saul, who at times was seeking to kill David, at other times allowing David to serve in his presence. Uh, Dicey circumstances, to say the least, when a spear is being thrown at you and it lands up and being embedded in the wall. David wisely discerns and navigates life through these constant tension, these constant conflicts, concluding at the end of chapter 20 where Saul has become determined to kill David and remove him as the recognized rival to the throne. The Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul, 
being replaced by an evil spirit, a demon who comes and plagues Saul. The Spirit of God now rests on David, who has been anointed Israel's next king. Yet David has another 10 years or so, uh, as we look at Scripture, before entering into that kingship. Saul is aware that David will be the next king of Israel, and yet his troubled mind in it, he thinks that he can frustrate God's plan by killing David. So chapter 20 marked that final break between David and Saul, and then from chapter 21 forward, David will be a fugitive, spending his days in hiding from Saul, running from Saul, avoiding capture by Saul and his enemies and the numerous eyes around the nation watching Excuse me. In 1 Samuel 21, David is exiled, cast out of the royal uh, palace, no longer in the presence of Saul. And he's about this time about 20 years old. So again, about five years have passed from chapter 16 to chapter 21. He goes into Judah's wilderness. He's in exile. uh, And it continues for about 10 years as we compare passages such as 2 Samuel 5, 4 that tells us David was about 30 years old when he became, uh, began to rule over Judah at Hebron. Remember that Jerusalem was not the royal city yet. And again, that rule began over Judah in 2 Samuel 2, verse 4. So he's about 30 years old by the time he becomes king, but he's still 20 years old where we're at here in 1 Samuel 23. But in 21, again, David obtains that sacralized, desacralized showbread from Ahimelech, also known as Ahijah, uh, the priest at Nob. And David's spied out by Doeg, and he flees to the Philistine king Achish in Goliath's town of Gath, ironically, carrying the very sword of Goliath of Gath into town. As these devolving events unfold from a human perspective, we might see it as a terrible time for David, fleeing to the enemy of city of Gath, hiding from the people he is to rule over, who would desire to kill him even. Yet out of all this comes the beautiful Psalms 34, Psalm 52, Psalm 56. You see how God is shaping David's heart, molding it, learning to trust him, in the worst of circumstances, the most difficult situations, when his life hangs by a thread at times, David complains, Lord, I thought you were going to make me king. You intended me for me to be king. I've been anointed. What kind of king am I going to be? Look at me. Running, hiding, an exile. Yet David is learning to trust and wait upon God's perfect timing. In 1 Samuel 22, David flees to the cave of Adullam, He's joined by about 400 rogues, debtors, and bitter malcontents, quite the rabble gang of of men to gather around you. In verses 3 through 5, David moves his family to the safety of Moab with his great-grandmother Ruth's kinfolk, settles then himself in the forest of Hereth, east of Adullam. And then in verses 6 to 19 of Chapter 22, Saul laments David's survival, and he fails once again to recognize God's sovereign protection over David. But then has Doeg, the snitching Edomite, slay priest Ahimelech and 85 priests of Nob, a great slaughter of tragedy. Slaughters their families, 
slaughters their livestock. And as the chapter closes in verses 20 through 23, only one son of Ahimelech named Abiathar escaped and fled after David, who pledges to protect Abiathar. And yet even in this time, we have more psalms given to us in Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. Just amazing to consider just these life events up to this point through chapter 22, uh, the turmoil, the oppression, the exile, the hanging by a thread, if you will, of this 20-year young David. And so this morning we'll continue our study in 1 Samuel, moving into chapter 23 now, as the Lord continues to give us a glimpse into some of the specific life events of David since God has rejected the disobedient King Saul. God continues to teach David many things in those days, preparing him to be the more and the most effective servant of the Lord possible. Lessons that David still shares with all who read his Psalms, which find their setting in this turbulent time of David's life. We learn how vital these years are in David's life as we read through the great Psalms of David, reminding us of God's great grace and delivering power. Psalms that we turn to under pressure, in trials and difficulty. While it may have been a time of great difficulty for David, it was a time that God used to sanctify David, in turn blessing us through the writing of Psalm 18, 34, 52, 54, 56, Psalm 57, Psalm 142, and likely more unknown to us. This is a good reminder for us. When we become frustrated with the difficulties in our family, our church, work, even trials with our own health, that we look at the man, David, and realize the key role that trials and difficulties have in our progressively sanctified lives as we continue to grow in and walk in Christ. Consider how often we become confused. We don't realize the times when our lives seem most difficult, hardships press in, pain comes, little do we realize that those may be the greatest times of fruit production as the Holy Spirit ministers through you and refines you. Times that God uses in such great ways to be a blessing to others and to bring glory to our Lord. While David was occupied with survival during these 10 years, God was using this time to progressively reveal the very scriptures that we'll look at even this morning. Yeah, namely the Psalms, which still impact our lives. Consider 3,000 years ago, we're studying events from three millennia ago, and we read of these events and it impacts us. It humbles us before the Lord and changes us to be more Christ-like. David's trials, they are condensed into just a few chapters here where we get some of the highlights. There may be more events that we are not aware of. But keep in mind that for seven days a week, 365 days a year over multiple years of being a vagabond, a fugitive. David approaches the very brink of losing his life, and yet God remains sovereign, continually intervening and proving to be the God who provides. 1 Samuel 23 details two more pursuits by Saul as he attempts to kill David. And David's problems just continue to pile up. You'd think he'd be able to address something, get it off his plate, and move on to the next one, but they just keep piling up. After getting his family to safety, Abiathar the priest comes after the slaughter of the priestly family, comes to David, and then news that a 
Israelite city is under Philistine siege. Keilah is being plundered as the harvest is being taken from the city. Look at Samuel 23, verse 1. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and plundering the, flesh, the threshing floors. Just put yourself in David's position. You know, problems keep coming. Now what? Should I continue tending to my own cares, preserving my own life? Or do I leave the forest of Hereth, where we found him in chapter 22, verse 5? Should he use his 400 armed men to deliver this city from the Philistines? Look at verse 2. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David said to his men, But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid. Here in Judah. How much more than if we go out to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? David's band of merry men do not share his same bold faith. Attack the Philistines? You do realize we're hiding and running for our lives already. Is this really the best plan right now to go attack the Philistines? We've got enough to do keeping ourselves alive. You just imagine the men coming to David. So David inquires of the Lord a second time in verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. That settles it. David has his answer. No more discussion is recorded for us. God's plan for David is clear. Go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Thus David fights on behalf of his beleaguered people against the ever-menacing Philistines. Look at verse 5. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. David is determined to obey God rather than be distracted by his own problems. God gives David victory, delivers the inhabitants of Keilah from the Philistine siege as promised. Go, I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And at this point, the Lord draws back the curtain just a little bit as we progress through this chapter to show us the means by which David has inquired of the Lord to ascertain God's will, how the Lord has provided David with the most effective military protection of all, a direct line of communication to a sovereign Lord. The lines of communication cannot be tampered with, cannot be cut, cannot be lost. Look at verse 6. Now it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. The Lord has provided an intermediary through Abiathar the priest, who escaped from Saul's slaughter of Doeg, uh, through Doeg in Nob. Now the ephod, it's a garment. It's referred to in the priestly ordinances as a part of the official dress of the high priest. It was to be made of threads of blue, of purple, of scarlet, of fine twined linen, and embroidered in gold thread with cunning work. We see the description of the ephod in Exodus 28, 29, 39, and Leviticus 8. And as this chapter unfolds, the omniscient sovereignty of God is contrasted against the willful foolishness of Saul as the Lord ministers through Abiathar to David and provides for his protection and deliverance. Look at verse 7. 
When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Saul does not have a clue what's going on in the spiritual realm here. What a sad state of affairs. For the man first appointed as king of Israel, what is he left with? A twisted view of reality, thinking God is working in his favor. Yet we should not be surprised by the depths of man's depravity. Saul seems to think David is now trapped because he's in a citadel. That's what Keilah means. Uh, Citadel. He cannot escape. Brilliant. Here we go. David's a prisoner in a fortified city. He'll surely fall into my invading army. What does verse 9 say? Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. He's known it for some time. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. David has not forgotten Saul's determination. So David asks Ahimelech, Abiathar, sorry, to bring the ephod so that he can inquire of God and discern the Lord's will. So what does David say? How does he address God Almighty in verse 10? David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Even though David has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah, he inquires of the Lord to make divinely sure and certain of Saul's movement. So here we see David's first concern is that the recently delivered city of Keilah would be destroyed on David's account. Are they going to come and destroy these, this city? David behaves quite nobly here in his concern for the well-being of others. Yet, David also, in the back of his mind, he knows what he would do if he were the leader in Keilah and in their position. So his first question is not whether or not they can fight and hold out against Saul's army, but will Keilah save their city, deliver me over to Saul? Will they save themselves, save their own skin, and turn me over to Saul? Again, we see David thinking very clearly about the very real possibility of his death in place of the city's destruction. Is my life worth their destruction? Later in 2 Samuel chapter 20, we read of future events where David's army commander, Joab, he receives the head of the rebellious Sheba from the besieged Abel Beth Maka. In lieu of destroying that city, Joab accepts his head tossed over the wall. Uh, It's not hard to imagine David even thinking of similar events uh, unfolding even in 1 Samuel 23. Look at verse 11. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Note that the Lord answers David's second question first. He answers in the affirmative, Saul is coming, without addressing Saul's greatest concern. What about my neck? His first question there in verse 11, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? So he repeats his first question to the Lord in verse 12. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And then the Lord answers, they will surrender you. God's second answer is as simple as the first. They will surrender you. Straightforward. When all is said and done, 
It doesn't matter that David just finished delivering Keilah from the Philistines. People are fickle. They're ungrateful when calculating their own self-preservation. I mean, you get, put yourself in this situation and we, my neck is on the line. How can I save it? Uh, the calculations become quite murky. To save their own skin, when Saul comes to Keilah, they will surely give the non-delivering negligent King Saul. Note that he's not the one who came to deliver Keilah, an Israelite city, from the Philistines. It was David. So Saul even being, being negligent in his duty. The very man who just brought about their preceding deliverance, David, they're going to turn him over. So verse 13, then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could. They scattered. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. Here's Saul. He gives up now that David's out in the open country. With Saul's other responsibilities, he just can't afford to chase David again in Judah's open country. Verse 14 says, David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds. As his man's men scatter, he and 600 men scatter, then they come together. They stay in the wilderness, in the strongholds, and remained in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Saul hasn't entirely given up his pursuit to destroy David. Saul likely had smaller search parties going out and about trying to find David. But again, we see God's absolute sovereignty on display. God did not deliver David into Saul's hand. We shift gears now in verses 15 and 8 through 18, where we're told of the final meeting between David and the king's son, Jonathan, their final goodbye. Look at verses 15 and 16. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life. While David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, he just cannot escape. He's just always on the run. You can imagine his mindset in this time, and we can even read of it in the Psalms that correlate with this historical, these historical events. Excuse me. Verse 16, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. God sovereignly allows Jonathan to ascertain David's whereabouts. And why does Jonathan come to meet David at Horish? Jonathan goes to strengthen David's hand in God. Is a good translation there. It's a remarkable character of the man Jonathan, the son of the king. Though he isn't, has an ungodly father, he demonstrates himself time and a time to be the godly man of faith that he is. So what did Jonathan say in verse 17? Thus he said to him, do not be afraid, peace be with you, almost as the Lord might come and comfort us. Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you. Boy, he's very confident in his statements here. And you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. Amazing, again, to look at the conviction and firm hope that Jonathan has. He counts it a privilege and expresses hope to serve next to King David when his time comes. Everybody, even Saul and the Philistines in Gath, you read 1 Samuel 21, verse 11, uh, those in Gath knew, is this not King David over Israel? They know that David is the next king of Israel. 
Jonathan knows David is going to be king. His father knows David is going to be king. So be encouraged. Strengthen your hand in God. May your hand, your arm be strengthened in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strengthened in God and his perfect plan to unfold his perfect timing. We need to exercise waiting on the Lord for his perfect timing for it to come about. Now, from a godless perspective, Jonathan is next in line uh, for the throne as the king's son. But Jonathan, as a faithful man of God, he will not fight against the Lord's plans. Jonathan is exercising great faith. Knowing that God has anointed David to be king, therefore Saul will not find you, and you will be king over Israel. How can the one whom God has designated to be the next king get killed before God fulfills his promise? Now that would be inconceivable, Vicini. Verse 18, so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Verse 18, again, Jonathan's faithfulness to God and to David results in the affirmation of their previous covenant made back in chapter 20, verses 12 to 17, where David promised that he would not harm Jonathan or Jonathan's family when he becomes king. They renew this bond between the two of them, and then Jonathan returns to his house. Verse 19 and 20, the Ziphites, where David finds himself hiding out amongst. The Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah. So they moved north, and you can turn in the back of your Bible at some point here and look at all these different locations and see a map of David's wandering around and, and fleeing Saul. So the Ziphites go up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalah, which is in the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hands. Who needs enemies when you have friends like the Ziphites? Word of David's whereabouts spread and such that he can't seem to hide anywhere at this point. Look at verse 21. So Saul says, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Saul is so pleased with the people of Ziph that he gives them the Lord's blessing for betraying the Lord's anointed king, David, that is going to replace Saul. Sin blinds us to our own irrational ways of thinking. Some people don't like the word, but I heard a pastor say, sin makes you stupid. It does. It makes me dumb. Clouds my thinking when I am in sin. I cannot see the truth before my face. Look at verse 22. Go now, Saul says to the Ziphites. Make more sure. I need GPS coordinates. Make more sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is or where his footsteps and who has seen him there. For I am told that he is very cunning. And again, we see Saul's short-sightedness as he attributes the repeated escapes to David's mere cunning. He's just a smart guy, but he can really get around. But Saul again disregards sovereign God Almighty, sends the Ziphites back to narrow down David's exact location. Look at verses 23 and following. So look, 
and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself, and then return to me with certainty, and I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, kind of leading the way, he'll come later on. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away. You can just see like a scurrying rat trying to get away from the foot. For Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. When you go to Israel, you visit this region south and west of Jerusalem, guides may point out how easily it could be for David and his men to evade Saul by dancing around opposite sides of the hills, helping us to realize how close David truly is to danger, to really disaster. David's about to get trapped here, but God intervenes and provides once again. Verse 27, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. Here's Saul chasing after the truly harmless David with fanatical abandon. He is neglecting his own responsibilities. The Philistines are invading the land, preventing a true and actual risk to Saul's kingdom, being in real trouble from that foreign enemy overrunning the country. So obviously Saul has to break off the pursuit. Verse 28, so Saul returned from pursuing David, went to meet the Philistines. Before they called, therefore, they called that place the Rock of Escape. So uh, we see that Saul almost got David, almost in arm's reach, if you might think of it that way. Yet even the Philistines are, we're reminded that the enemy of Israel are subject to God's sovereign control. Though the Philistines want nothing to do with the living God, they are not abiding in the Lord and walking according to His will. The Lord chooses to use these godless pagans for His purposes, sends them in to invade the land at just the right time, requiring Saul to break off the pursuit. And the chapter closes in verse 29. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. You see on your maps, kind of at the north end of the Dead Sea, even near where uh, we have uh, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls that we were talking about even in our first hour. But it's against the backdrop of all these events that these life-threatening situations that David finds himself in that he writes Psalm 54. Why don't you turn over to Psalm chapter 54. It's titled, A Prayer for Defense Against Enemies. God is using these times of trial to be a blessing to us, even as we read this this morning. Look at the subtitle of Psalm 54, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? What does David write in Psalm 54 as he knows he's been ratted out by the Ziphites? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me, the Ziphites. Violent men have sought my life, Saul and others. They have not set God before them. 
They have no thought of what would the Lord have us do? How would he have us uh, deal with David hiding among us or Saul even losing his mind? Verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. He recalls back how he has been victorious. The Lord has granted him this victory over his past enemies from Jonathan or from Goliath forward, even some of the animals that he took out in the wilderness. But the Lord will deliver him. Another one of those marvelous psalms, born out of what? A time of trial, a time when everyone around David seems to be an enemy. If we were in control, we would want the Ziphites and others in the land to bless David, encourage him, provide for him, protect him, give him supplies. But God allows the very people that David is destined to rule over to be his enemies to turn David over to Saul. Yet out of all of this, David writes a psalm, and what does he say? God is my helper, the sustainer of my soul. All these trials tell us something of God's working for his people, Israel, in the life of David, specifically to prepare him to be king someday. Yet they're also written for our admonition, as we have noted previously in these Old Testament passages. We don't want to miss out what God has for us, that sometimes in our trials, in our pains, in our worst difficulties, we have our greatest opportunities to grow, to mature, and to be used of the Lord. We pray, oh Lord, use me, but don't bring any trouble into my life, right? Isn't that our prayer? keep, Keep it nice and easy, don't rock the boat, Lord, just use me. Oh Lord, mold and shape me, but do it without pain and hardship. That's not the way the Lord works. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let steadfastness have its perfect work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. What happened to Saul? Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Who received the blessing? David. For once he has passed the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Isn't that what it all boils down to? Do you and do I, do we love the Lord? Does it mold and shape how we conduct ourselves day in and day out, moment by moment? So it was with David in the hands of God, 
who provides. There's four observations that you heard me share even as we looked at uh, chapter 17, but they continue to be applicable to us as we study this historical narrative and this time of trial in David's life. Be encouraged by what God has previously accomplished in and through you. As your faith grows, so ought your works be growing in preparation for the next challenge. Today's challenges are preparing you for tomorrow. You don't know, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but be faithful in today's challenges. Secondly, conflict, difficulty, obstacles, even life-threatening events, they're all routine components of God's plan for developing His servants. Do you claim to be a servant of the Most High even today as you sit here this morning? As your responsibilities in life grow, the degree of difficulty grows, the degree of conflict grows, the obstacles, they grow in proportion to your faithful handling of each multifaceted trial, even as James said, various trials that come our way. Thirdly, to accomplish future legendary feats of faithfulness, you must be faithful in the responsibilities God has given you for today. What do you have to do today? I need to mow the yard. I need to brush the toilet. Whatever I need to do today, be faithful in all that you have at your hand today to the glory of God. And that runs into our fourth point here. Just determine to glorify God in all that you do. If that is your determined resolve to glorify the Lord in all that you do, identifying the right goal according to God's revealed word, then you can entrust the journey's details and results to the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for showing us through your gracious provision for David that you are the God who provides. Thank you, Father, for using this man of God and these life-threatening situations, overwhelming opposition of those who would be his greatest supporters, should have been, yet they've become his greatest enemies. Lord, in it all, David trusted you. He turned to you. He depended upon you as his provider. Father, thank you for giving us a glimpse into this time of David's life where you grew, you matured him to become such a great instrument in your hands, an instrument of blessing that continues thousands of years later, even as we read these beautiful psalms. Father, what a privilege for us to be encouraged by these psalms of David, to walk with you, to be sheltered under your wings, to know that you are the God who protects, the God who keeps, the God who preserves, the God who provides for us. Father, may that be our prayer, to trust in you all the more until you call us home to your eternal glory. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.